morning. Well, you know, we have our own version of the Von Trapp family here in the church. It's the Pricer family, Jessica, Peggy, and Ron. Thank you, Pricers. We uh, very much appreciate your talent. We have a multi-talented church family. And today, we have a remnant that is here from the non-participants in the family camp. Uh, and that's good. Look forward to uh, spending time today with you. We, um, I was out there yesterday, and uh, it's a good turnout, and at least 25 of the church family floated down the river for five miles from one place where they put in to the campground. And I was told ahead of time, we don't know whether we can do it because the, because the river's colder. And so I said, well, how much colder is it? And they said, well, it's two degrees colder. And I thought, okay, that sounds really scary, two degrees colder. And, <laughs> you know, on the other hand, I didn't do it, so what can I say, you know? Uh, um, but it was a good time. And the one, the one caveat in the whole thing was, um, now I'm having a brain camp, the gal in the wheelchair, Cherie, she was going to float down. I thought, great. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? And they said, we're going to lift her over the bridge down into the river. And I said, I don't think so. I <laughs> and last I heard, she floated down, but they didn't lift her over the bridge. So, so that's good. You know, everybody survived it. And uh, I bring you their greetings from their uh, time away this weekend. We today are addressing a subject that is a natural born instinct of us, and that is to make evaluations and judgments throughout our life. Let's open with prayer. Lord, we ask today that your word would take a dividing measure in our lives and cause us to discern the hearts and intents of our lives in a way that makes us measure out as ones who are followers of Jesus, who reflect his grace and mercy in our life and the lives of those around us. And we commit to you to, that to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the subject in the Sermon on the Mount on judgment. Um, and we have been addressing different subjects that come out of the Beatitudes. And then Jesus' warning that his disciples are going to be suffering persecution. And then he gets into the subject matter that really begins to blow apart the value system of the first century. For example, um, Jesus teaches that uh, we are to be men and women who guard our anger because our anger is something that is akin to murder. And and we say, I don't think so. I, I don't murder anybody just because I'm angry. And Jesus says, you have committed murder if you are ones or are characterized with anger with your brother. You say, well, okay, but at least I'm still following God. And Jesus said, well, no, if, if you haven't reconciled with your brother, then leave your gift at the altar and go and reconcile with your brother. And, and the men's group on Saturday morning, we've been working on that. And that, again, takes the traditional view of following God and worshiping to a different level. It says God is concerned about the inner construct of our lives. 
about our value system. And in fact, if we have values that are inconsistent with lives of those around us, get that in order and then come back and provide your gift at the altar. And certainly, Jesus addressed with the subject of adultery, the subject of sexual immorality and the place of men and women in his society. And that was dramatically different. When we taught, in, when we taught about the subject of divorce, we taught, we reminded ourselves that in the first century, if a man went to his wife and said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, she was toast. That's even worse than Texas. Texas is pretty bad, but I mean, I love Texas, but Texas and the divorce laws are pretty bad. But that woman was out on her ear and there'd be no work for family law lawyers in the first century with that kind of stuff. But it was more severe than that. Cato, the Roman historian tells us that the distinction between men and women in the first century was so great that if a woman was caught in adultery in a marriage relationship, the man could kill her. But if a man was caught in adultery with a woman, there was no consequence. So there was a dramatic difference in the view of men and women in the first century. And Jesus comes in and says, if you look on a, a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Now, there are different ways to handle divergencies of values in a society. You know, everybody understands that there's the haves and the have-nots, the people with power, the people without, the people with position, the people without. And there are various ways to address that. As recently as two days ago, the geniuses that represent us in, in Washington, D.C. proposed that they need, they, we needed to allocate $20 million for female crash dummies. I'm not making this up. I am not making this up. And they said that's a way to deal with gender diversity and gender, gender inequality in our country. Um, someone astutely said, you know, how do we know that those crash dummies are not identifying as women? Why don't we just put dresses on some of them and save $20 million? <laughs> and I thought that was a great suggestion. There are distinctions between men and women in the scriptures, but, and this is where, ladies, if you tune out for a minute, and I'm speaking just to the men, there is a enthusiastic setting up of women in the Bible as equal to men. It starts in the Garden of Eden when Adam identifies that he is without one corresponding to him. And so Jesus brings him, excuse me, God brings him Eve, and he said, name her consistent with that. He was Adam, and in the Hebrew, she was Adama, um, of Adam. She was born, she came out of Adam, out of his rib. And she was one who met his needs in a way that his career and the Garden of Eden didn't satisfy him. You don't get any farther than you find yourself in the New Testament where Again, women are raised to this prestigious same level as men, and we really need to shout that from the rooftops. The scriptures say 
women are joint heirs of the grace of God. I remember I had students when I taught at Multnomah, and the men kind of got excited about the fact that, you know, their spouses ultimately need to submit to them. And I said, you know, get off that kick. Ephesians 5 says you submit yourself, subject yourself one to the other. You're a joint heir of the grace of God. And so a wise New Testament follower of Jesus lifts up that woman and says, I was born of woman. I'm not independent of you. Now I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul says, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man. In fact, it goes so far in the scriptures, and we're getting to judgment, but it gets so far in the scriptures to elevate the value of marriage and of the man and woman together that we get this dramatic description in 1 Corinthians 7 when it says, don't abstain from sexual relations with your spouse. Continue to be regular in your relationship sexually with her to protect each other from the designs of Satan in your life. Women, you are not to, you're to give up your body in a way to your husband that makes yourself available. Men, you're to do the same thing. So that kind of equalitarian New Testament value of men and women addressed by Jesus in his thing about the looking at a woman with lust is that we are in all the different matters of our both our marriage relationship as well as our church and family relationship, we are to treat women as honorable and as equal heirs of the grace of God. So Jesus works himself through the Sermon on the Mount and says, that is the standard that God expects. And in fact, now we are in chapter 7, and he's going to address something that comes naturally to everybody, and that is judgment. And this verse, seven, chapter 7, verse 1, is abused a number of ways in terms of interpretation. Let's read in chapter 7 and verse 1. By the way, show me your Bibles. Hold them up. We haven't done that in a long time. Good. All right. Most of you are carrying a Bible. I see a couple of computer screen, phone screens there. That's fine. James, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge or you will be judged for the, for the same way in which you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. This is a verse that's often thrown out there to say, don't be critical of other people. Don't be involved in church discipline with other people. And that's categorically wrong because you only get a few more chapters into Matthew before Matthew gives us instructions in Matthew 18 about how to be involved when a brother sins against you and that it can go to the level of church discipline. The point here is not an absolute prohibition against judgment. It's saying when you judge and you do the thing that comes naturally, and I don't know about you, but every time that I read a paragraph or I listen to somebody on TV, I'm kicking in judgment right away the way people look, the way they dress, the way they sound, the way they act. And Jesus is saying, when you judge, you need to judge others in a way that is a measure consistent with, you, with what you apply to yourself. So he says in uh, Matthew chapter 7 that every part of life involves judgment. In fact, if you were to catalog all, catalog all of the t 
teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, some have estimated 40 to 50% of his instruction deals with judgment. But the church has a way of kind of twisting that. And so we find ourselves, and we saw this in James chapter 2. Do you remember that? That amazing little passage in James 2 where the church had played a different game. This is the first century church, and it's in the first year or two after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He said, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the man, you stand there and sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And that's the issue with judgment in our lives. The issue is not whether we're going to do it or not. We all the time are involved in discriminating thoughts about all the different parts of our life. The issue in the New Testament is, what is your motive? Traditionally, if you judge others and you're critical of them, you're putting them down so you can put yourself up. And the scripture the scriptures uh, warn against that in saying in Matthew 7, and we're back in Matthew 7 again, verses 3 through 5, why do you look at the speck or sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? And then Jesus instructs about the issue of hypocrisy. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, someone has said the first impact that conversion has on a life moves a person to the subject of love, the love of God for him and the love of, of him for others based on what God has done for them. And, and that may be true, but if that's true, the second ethic, the second construct of our heart is humility and this section says you realize that if you're judging other people that you're you're judging with evil motives and you're judging in a way that doesn't look at yourself so Matthew says and Jesus instructs us to be instructive to be introvertive to look in evaluation of our own lives that's a hard thing for you to do yourself it's usually more effectively done by the people that live with you if you have the courage to ask them than for you to do yourself because there's a lot of self-deception that goes on. It says, well, you know, I'm not that bad. And actually, you may be that bad. You know, uh, you may be someone who has taken a different standard in your life than you apply to the standards of others, and that's the whole point. If there's a plank in your eye, you need to first of all be concerned about that more than the lesser offense in the life of someone else. So in terms of this eye-doctoring evaluation in Matthew 7, Jesus says, don't be concerned about the speck in your brother's eye until you first evaluated 
your own life and the hypocrisy that comes in your life. You know, some have said that the critics of the church are not so much a critic of Christianity, but they're a critic of the caricature of Christianity. And I think that's true. Because I find that in the open-hearted, warm, honest interaction of people in the Christian church, they're willing to say, look, I haven't got my act together. And I'm willing to acknowledge that whatever I'm working on or whatever I'm concerned in talking to you about, I may have that problem and more of it. But it's the phonies who say, I don't have a problem. You're the one with the problem. And refuse to evaluate themselves that Jesus says that's inappropriate in terms of the kingdom of God. So where does that leave us? Uh, it certainly places in us the responsibility, as Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, to uh, address the subject in verses 6 and 7 of the task ahead. And he uses a couple of unredeeming illustrations to teach that. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Now, dogs in the first century were not the little <laughs> domestic pets that we all enjoy. They were the ravaging packs that went through the cities eating out of the garbage dumps and out of the rubbish that was around the city. And they were scary animals. And when Jesus says, don't give dogs what is sacred, he's saying don't contaminate the quality of our lives and our commitment to God with those who don't deserve it. And the second illustration, he says, don't throw your pearls to pigs. Again, clearly within the Jewish community, they understood this as a condemned, as a prohibited um, animal in terms of the Old Testament. He says, if you do, you may trample them under their feet, that is the pearls, and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. What does that mean in terms of the whole subject of judgment? It means that there's a time for you and I to be involved in reflection. And I'd recommend to you that you take a time and you set apart a time on a regular basis to say, where am I in terms of my walk with God? And how am I presenting myself in terms of candor and honesty with those around me? And from that time of personal reflection, you recognize that you are pursuing a standard for life that God approves of. It doesn't mean other people will approve of it. And there was a pattern in the New Testament ministry of Jesus and his disciples where he went into a community and they rejected him. And he taught his disciples that there's a limit to the kind of commitment that you make to those who are rejecting God's purposes. In other words, in order to not contaminate that which is sacred, the value of a pearl, there are times when you say, enough. It's, it's enough that you've rejected the message of Jesus, and I need to get on to the better pursuits of doing things that honor God in my life. Now, that's not to say that Jesus, te taught it, that Jesus treated his disciples that way, because he didn't. He was really the opposite in terms of long-suffering with his disciples. 
Do you realize that when Judas became one of the 12 disciples, that Jesus knew from the outset what was the end result of Judas coming into that select group? And that for three years, they walked with Judas and ate with him, and Judas and others listened to the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus acted with compassion even right up until the Last Supper when he said, whatever you do, do quickly. The, the compassion and mercy that Jesus applied in his disciples was without parallel, staggering actually. Take um, Thomas. <laughs> Thomas walked with Jesus during those three years and Jesus was dead and buried and rose again and, and Thomas said, well, just, just let, me, let, me, let me see your hands. Just make sure you're really Jesus. And Jesus graciously conceded the kind of ministry to Thomas that encouraged his faith. And my favorite is Peter, of course. <laughs> Peter, who's always hot and cold in terms of his commitment to Jesus, where for the most part he's hot and he says, you know, Lord, I'm going to protect you in this situation. And he takes up a sword to strike a soldier, and Jesus stops him. And says, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. Never, Lord, I'll give up my life for you. And it wasn't but hours later that both with the Roman legion as well as a young slave girl, that Jesus, that Peter denied Jesus three times. And you know what Jesus' response was? I hope this encourages you because this is the heart of God toward you and toward me. In the midst of a bizarre adamant desertion of Peter to Jesus and a denial of even knowing him, worried for his own skin. Jesus said, Peter, I prayed for you. And when you recover, go strengthen your brethren. Does that encourage you? It certainly does me. It's a life value that I live by that God gives us second chances and third chances and believes that our feet are still on the ground for doing things that are worthwhile and count for him. So when Jesus teaches about judgment, he really is mirroring the message of John chapter 7, for example. And in that passage, the uh, warning of Jesus is that we are to be ones who not just judge, avoid judging, but we judge with the right standards. So John chapter 7 says, Jesus said, I did not bring, I did not, I did, I did one miracle and you're all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now it's a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? And then he gives the instruction. He says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Judge correctly. So this instinct that we have naturally to evaluate life around us and everything that we see and everything we hear is good and important, but it needs to be done with the right motives and it needs to be judged with the right standards. And in that respect, then we live a discerning, discriminating life 
in terms of our Christian experience. The final instruction of the epistles brings us to places of mercy and compassion, I think, to the instruction of the, of the New Testament church. Romans chapter 12 says, Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. As much as it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with every one. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The point of that passage is that we are to be people who are ministers, not of judgment, but we're ministers of mercy. And so to the extent that we have opportunity to engage in the life of another, the very first thing we need to be careful of is that we have worked the value system of the kingdom of God through our own life and that we're speaking with candor and honesty when we say, there but for the grace of God go I. And then, having done that and having seek to seek, sought to have an ethic that in our work, in our family relationships, in our career, um, and for me, I'm in a vocation where I judge dozens of times every day, and then I'm in front of a courtroom where somebody else in a robe judges on a regular basis. And in that regard, we want to be people who are people of mercy. I love the passage in James chapter 2. We don't need to be people that try to resort to the uh, inequities of our world by artificial political constructs such as come out of Washington, D.C. We're to be people who, as James wrote, speak and act as those who are going to be judged. To say, okay, take a step back. Am I willing to apply the standard that I'm willing to lay on someone else to myself? Because that's what the Bible says should be our measure. And the Beatitudes pick that up when they say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or as James wrote, and I think this was a ethic that James saw regularly in the life of Jesus and the family as he grew up with them, said, because judgment without mercy was shown to anyone who has not been merciful. In other words, you're going to get out of life what you put into it in terms of your compassion and your interaction with others. And then that concluding epitaph in James chapter 2, which says, mercy triumphs over judgment. What does that mean for us? Where do these instructions land in our life? I think that they are an encouragement and they tell us the following things. If in fact, Jesus teaches that much of our life needs to be with discrimination, with evaluation, with judgment, then the question first of all is don't major in the minors. Don't get all wound up in the speck in somebody else's eye when it's likely you have something going on in your life that's as great or bigger. I find myself um, involved in a schedule of work where I set myself forward in terms of the things I expect of others in terms of 
measuring up to the tasks that we have. And so um, I can be a pretty uh, forward-directed person in terms of the instructions I give other people, my employees and other people. And I have to remember that everybody has a different world and different kinds of chaoses going on in their life. And they bring that to the table, to the workplace, to the church, to conversations, to relationships. And rather than being first jump critical that something that you expected didn't happen, I think the first response is you listen more than you talk. You say, how are you doing? And you genuinely mean that. And you take the time to, to listen to what's going on in their life and try to measure your encouragement and counsel that way. Don't major in the minors. This text also says, don't let others' standards for your life be the thing that drives you. You need to be self-convinced that your value system is being worked out in your life. And if someone else doesn't understand it, unless they have an appropriate correction for you, you just leave them with their misunderstanding. It doesn't mean you don't listen, doesn't mean you don't stay open, but you consider the fact that my goal is to be introspective and to be candid and honest in my life and therefore in the lives of others. You know, the kind of accountability that God wants us to have is something that measures our anger and our mouth so that we're not murderers, our eyes and our heart so we're not adulterers, and even our worship so that we make sure that as much as it's possible with those around us, we've cleaned up our lives. We've reconciled ourselves to those for whom reconciliation is possible. And until that happens, we are not a people that are working from the inside out in terms of integrity. And that's what God wants of each of us. I love the, the banner in James 2 where it says, mercy triumphs over judgment. To the extent you fail, and I fail on a regular basis, and I, I love the five words that I use, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and I hope that's a part of the vernacular of each of your communications in your marriages, in your church relationships. As recently as in the last six months, I inadvertently offended one of the men in this church. And um, I let it go for about a week, and then I went up and I said, boy, I am really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And he said, no problem, and seemingly it's fine. And then I checked in with him a week or two later and said, are we okay? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. That's the kind of honesty and integrity and gentleness and mercy that's to be the real part of the Christian church. And the reason is because of Jesus, because he's worked on us from the inside out and reconstituted us as people of the light, people who are to be salt to those around us, people that are to be light in a way that reflects the work of God in our life. May God give us the grace as we walk through that together, side by side, that will be a church who is not known as a caricature of Christianity, will be a church that's known as real Jesus followers. Let's pray. Lord, it's... Um,
it's sobering to realize that the evaluation of your word and your spirit continues to bring us short in terms of the limited way in which we measure up. We understand your word when it says we all stumble in many ways. And so we're up front with you and with each other that in fact we don't always have all the answers. We don't always make all the good decisions. In fact, we create offenses and hurt in those that are closest to us. Would you, God, give us the grace to be honest and candid in our own lives with our how we're doing and in the lives of others in a way that we best reflect the work of God in Jesus in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.